Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. This is probably one of the most interactive interviews that I've had so far. And when you listen to it, you'll know why. So we're talking to Jeremy Lin, who is an interpretive naturalist for the California State Parks in Santa Cruz. And what does an interpretive naturalist do, you ask? So Jeremy works with all age groups to help increase a curiosity and appreciation for nature through interactive educational techniques. And he took me through some of his quizzes during this interview, which was super fun. And I think you can also very easily play along. So Jeremy also manages several park programs, including nature education, volunteers, and infrastructural and long-range planning programs. Another interesting topic we covered with Jeremy was the value of volunteers to the park system, which has been part of his master's research. I had no idea how much the park system relied on the help of volunteers to help maintain the parks. And through our discussion, I learned about how volunteers play an extensive role within the system that has very limited resources and personnel. So the federal agency has over 20,000 employees and 250,000 volunteers. These volunteers give up one of their most precious resources, their time. And we talked to Jeremy about his research on this topic and how he looks to engage volunteers more in the future. Finally, Jeremy talks about his experiences being a first-generation Chinese-American working with the California State Parks and what he's done and seen to improve diversity and inclusion within the institution. Now, you may remember we had a similar conversation back in episode four with our guest, Jack Shu, who is a retired superintendent and also from the California State Parks. He was with the state park system in California for about 30 years. So it was really interesting to add Jeremy's experience to this larger narrative of diversity and inclusion in the park system. And I hope that it will help you understand better what are the unique experiences of employees in the California State Park System. Definitely, it's not a full story, but it's a story that I think is worth sharing. So I hope you enjoy the quizzes and I hope you have fun with this episode. Thank you so much for joining us on Breaking Green Ceilings. We'll get started with our first question here, which is, how did your experiences growing up shape your perception about the natural environment? Well, first off, I'm really happy to be here on Breaking Green Ceilings. It's my new favorite podcast. Oh, yay. I've been listening and you have a lot of amazing guests and I love your format and your questions and the whole premise of the podcast. So good job on you for doing this. I haven't seen anything really like this. So you're doing something really unique and really awesome. Wow. I'm going to try not to like inflate my ego here. Let it inflate a little bit. Yeah, you can feel good. (laughs) Just for this podcast, just for this one, and then you got to get back to normal. (laughs) Yeah, you have a ticket to ride just for this one. All right, all right. Okay, well, great. Thank you for having me. My name is Jeremy Lin. I'm an interpreter for California State Parks. I'm really excited to do this. So the first question you asked about kind of my growing up and how that shaped my perception of the natural environment. Yeah. Well, I grew up in New Mexico, where my parents owned a bed and breakfast. And I grew up in the mountains in Taos. 
I remember getting sunburnt while exploring, trying to find pottery shards. The native wow. tribes there made a lot of pottery in the Southwest. And so yes. we'd go these, through these cactus fields and find like all these pottery shards. And that was really fun. Wow. Was, and try to piece them together and like, oh, I think I made one full bowl out of all these like pottery shards. Wow. <laughs> so I spent some time outside and then I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I just started skating. Every day I skateboarded till the sunset. I still have bruises and like like dents in my if you run your finger up my shins, you can feel like the dents of me skate like a skateboard hitting my shins and stuff. Yeah. And oh. I definitely still have some like lingering injuries that still persist because I just like ollie down like loading docks and like seven steps and like kick was kick flipping down things. I was deep. I was heavy into skating. And I didn't yeah. really care too much about the environment at that time, to be honest. It was right. more of just like recreation, mm-hmm. outdoor stuff. I became really interested in the environment when I went to UC Santa Cruz. So my family moved out to California, okay. went to UC Santa Cruz. All my housemates were obsessed with backpacking and camping and hiking. And that was like kind of new to me. I didn't really do much of that. I was all like, I was all skating. I was on a springboard diving team. So it was pretty athletic. And then once I started backpacking with my new housemates and friends, it was on. That was like the moment I was like, this is it. I want to be spending time outside. Okay. And then I started studying environmental science and I took classes that had me outside, like in the field the entire time. Mm -hmm. This one class, Natural History Field Quarter at UC Santa Cruz was amazing. I was basically camping outside with a group of experts. We'd wake up early and go birding. And then we'd do herpetology studies. And then we'd identify plants. And then we'd do some just kind of relaxing nature observations, some just general natural history stuff, geology, all the different fields. And then we'd have campfires at night and we'd play music around the campfire like every night. And that was a game changer for me. And I started playing a lot of guitar around then too. So that's kind of... Just like the brief little run through of just my experience outside yeah. and then how it shifted to like an environmental study focus. Yeah, that's such an interesting and fun story. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like you were a little bit of a late bloomer when it comes to the environmental or getting onto the environmental bandwagon, but at the same time, not so much because you were outside and interacting with nature a lot while you were growing up. So I'm sure that had an impact on you while you were growing up and even like later on in your life. So what was it about being out in nature and interacting with it that made you want to pursue a career in it? I think there's something equalizing about nature Mm -hmm. where if you're really highly stressed, you can get relaxed by being out in nature. And if you're very kind of maybe sluggish or feeling kind of lazy or lethargic, I think is the word I'm thinking for, of, and you go outside and you're exploring, you can just yeah. get this energy from it. So it's, I think it's like the ultimate equalizer, no matter where you are yeah. in your life, there are things that you can benefit from by going on a hike or going to the beach or taking time to observe nature and just relax in nature. I think there's, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, anyone can benefit from that. Right. And that's so true. I think for me, at least I walk my dog twice a day. And even though sometimes our routes may be repetitive through the neighborhood, I feel like I always notice something new, like a tree that I didn't before or listening to a new bird tune that I didn't notice before. So it just feels like a new experience each time. And it's rejuvenating and humbling at the same time. 
What kind of dog do you have? I think she's a blue lacy is what I've been told. Okay. And she is the state dog of Texas. So she looks like... Oh, proud Texan over here. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, don't mess with Texas over here. Sapna representing Texas. I know. And that was not intentional. She was a stray <laughs> who I found at a water treatment plant in McAuliffe, Texas, which is in South Texas. So just doing some work there. But yeah, she looks like a silver lab and a Weimaraner smaller a little smaller just like or medium sized i guess but yeah she's definitely got the texan attitude where she's out there she's feisty and she has her own personality or like carries her own and she's killed quite a few things not to say that texans are killers but (laughs) (laughs) she's willing to stand her ground yeah 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 defend her independence Yeah, to not be treaded upon. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> the Lone Ranger. <laughs> there she goes. Yeah. Sorry, enough of my puns, but... <laughs> no, I like, I like that. One thing that you mentioned earlier on, or when you were introducing yourself, is that you are an interpretive naturalist. And from what I understand is within that role, you get to educate the general public and in particular children or youth about the importance of nature. So tell us a little bit about who an interpretive naturalist is and how do you go about capturing people's attention so that they're intrigued by the environment and want to do something to help protect it? Right on. I like that question. Yeah. So an interpretive naturalist essentially brings people out into nature and I guess interprets what's happening. It's not the best term, to be honest. Interpreter. People are like, oh, what language? I'm an interpreter for California State Parks. Like, oh, Spanish or what's up? What what language? (laughs) So that's true. It's not the best term, but it's a fitting term in that I'm making things accessible Mm -hmm. in nature to, to the general public. Right. And it's really dependent upon the people that we have coming to the parks. So the first thing that we learn as interpreters is to make everything that we're teaching relevant to our audience. So understanding our audience is number one. Where are they coming from? What's their education level? What's their interest? What do they want to do out there? How can we best make use of their time out there? What are things that we can talk about that are messages from California State Parks and our mission statement, but that also are interesting to whoever's coming to the park, to the public? I think the best way to capture attention really is to just be real with people. The traditional way of interpretation, picture this ranger standing next to a campfire with this flat hat that's just like lecturing, talking about nature. That's the traditional kind of standard interpretation that everyone pictures when they think about the park system, national parks, state parks. Yeah. We're moving away from that. So we're moving more towards this kind of largely interactive model where people are participating in nature and exploring and playing an active role while observing different plants maybe doing citizen science things like identifying different endangered plants or different species that are of concern or just interesting to catalog the different species we have in our ecosystem. So challenging folks to not only be a part of the program, but actively engaging with the program and learning about Mm -hmm. the park system. So instead of them being dependent upon me to be like, all right, let me just explain everything for you while you sit there. It's like, all right, here's a magnifying glass. Here's binoculars. Let's go in this together. Let's go find some salamanders, some newts, some reptiles and go and hold them and study the biology of these animals as we're there together. But I think of just being real and being a person. I think sometimes there's this wall that's put up of just like this stoic, epic park ranger that (laughs) kind of have these 
I don't know, idyllic ideals and aren't accessible. They're kind of held up on this pedestal. Yes. And I think being real with people and talking to people like I'm a person too, and I have faults and personality traits and likes and dislikes, Mm -hmm. and I'm doing the best I can. I think getting on people's level and being real with them is the most important thing that we can do as parks, people, rangers, interpreters, anybody just to kind of relate to people. Okay. I've also been doing these pop quizzes to really engage people. And I've got one for you. If you want to do it, (laughs) it's an interpretive trail trivia pop quiz. It's super fun. You want to do this one of these real quick? Okay. So this is kind of an example of how I've been engaging people recently. Okay. I recently did this Earth Day thing. So I was live streaming from the California State Parks, Facebook, statewide, interviewing different interpreters and park staff all across the state. And it's a climate action was the theme. So I'll just kind of model a little bit of like one of my interpretive things. I think that's one of the better ways to communicate this. I can just kind of model this for you. So in the spirit of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, I want to demonstrate and set up a delivery of this trail trivia quiz. So we talk about climate action and the need for climate action. And the Caribbean islands are prime examples of regions of the world that benefit from immediate and comprehensive climate action. The Caribbean islands are increasingly susceptible to environmental changes such as sea level rise, hurricanes, longer dry seasons, shorter wet seasons. And without proactive climate action, islands like the Barbados will see economic, environmental, and health challenges. Now, one of my favorite musical artists, Rihanna, is a Barbadian singer actress and businesswoman who's been recognized for embracing various music styles and reinventing her image throughout her career. So this quiz here is called Rihanna or Piranha, as in the fish. <laughs> so what's going to happen here, I'm going to say a statement and right. Safna, you got to answer as fast as you can. Oh, shit. I'm going to put, I'm gonna put like 60 <laughs> seconds on the clock here. There's 10 questions, so okay. six seconds per question. And so I'm going to say a statement. And if it has to do with Rihanna, you say Rihanna. If it has to do with Piranha, you say piranha. And this is in the spirit of climate action, bringing awareness to the need to do climate. And Rihanna is representative of some of the Barbadian culture. So we're going for this thing. Here we go. 60 seconds on the clock. (gasps) Okay. Rihanna or piranha and California State Parks, often described as extremely predatory when absolutely slaying the music game in R&B, hip hop and dance. Rihanna. Yes. Celebrated for developing skin tone inclusive makeup line for all people of all skin tones. Rihanna. Yes. Was an army cadet in the military program in Barbados. Rihanna. Yes. Can tear apart the entirety of a cow's flesh in hours. Rihanna. Yes. Recently donated $2 million to protect children suffering from domestic abuse. Rihanna. Yes. Produces one of the most forceful bites ever measured in vertebrates. Rihanna. Yes. Recognized in the media as vicious and violent hunters of the Amazon basin. Piranha. Yes. Famous for their tightly packed interlacing blade-like teeth. Piranha. Yes. Witnessed an exorcism as a child. Rihanna? Wow. Yes. Once called the most ferocious fish in the world by President Theodore Roosevelt. Piranha. Yes. Yes, you made it. Okay. Sapna, you got 100%. 100% right there. (laughs) Boom. Rihanna or Piranha. Thank you for playing. That was awesome. That That was awesome. I I really enjoyed that. And I was on my toes here. That's exactly it. And I learned things about the piranha that I think have stuck, even though I was receiving the information really fast. And it's all about the transition into it. So that's why I kind of modeled the lead in talking about climate action 
and then making it somewhat relevant to pop culture, mm-hmm. but then putting people on their toes. So they're like, oh my God, I got to have to think about this. Like I'm, I got my heart going. Like your heart was going a little bit. You're yeah, like, I'm totally. going to be quiz right now. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, then it gets people like, oh, they're involved with this right. content, with this. And then it's within this larger context of climate action. And this is a fun way to think about the people who represent some of these countries. So now they're like, oh, Barbados is affected by climate change. I love Rihanna. She, her <laughs> culture, you know, her people must be dealing with some stuff. And then it's kind of piecing things together. It might be right. somewhat abstract the way I'm describing this thing, but I hope that there's some kind of connections being made. Yeah. Kind of tackling a lot of things all at once. Right. So where did the piranha thing come through? Is it just because Rihanna and piranha rhyme? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. There's no, have, uh, there's no reading. There's no reading sound <laughs> for <further. laughs> I'm thinking about this too much then. <laughs> That's great. I don't think we've ever done like a pop quiz in the history of breaking green ceilings. I have one more for you at the end. Oh, we'll okay. Wrap it up with one more. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to it then. So one thing that you mentioned earlier on in terms of sort of the persona of the rangers being one who is stoic or kind of like unreachable in a sense is I was just thinking that could it be because like the uniform helps identify them as part of the park system but it also kind of creates the separation between them and us do you think yeah I do think the uniform's a challenge especially when reaching out to non-traditional park users, we call them, people who don't usually use the park and they go into the park and they see someone in a uniform and uniform looks like ice. Yeah. It looks like a cop. It looks like people that are enforcing potentially immigration. Yeah. And a lot of communities are used to being treated certain ways based on where they live or what they look like. And so just the emblem of the wearing the bear patches on either arm yeah. and the uniform itself looks like law enforcement. So there's a reticence for certain communities to engage with the park system mm-hmm. based purely on that symbolism and the uniform. Right. That's a challenge we overcome. And I lead a lot of backpacking trips. We do backpacking trips through the park system. I'm in uniform and we reach out to underserved communities. We call them equity and access trips. So folks who aren't traditionally using the park system, we partner with different communities in our area and bring them on backpacking trips and supply the backpacks, supply the food, book all the campsites, come up with curriculum for them, do meetings beforehand to get them front loaded. So they're ready to go mentally and physically to go on these trips, make sure they're all equipped. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time to break down those initial walls because they see me and they're like, I don't want to hang out with this guy. This guy's an enemy to my people or this guy's not the person that I want to spend time with because I'm suspicious that this person is not going to treat me right or something. There's a lot of stigma about that. So, But there are ways to break down those walls, to break down those barriers and break through those green ceilings Uh to be able to engage a lot of people who might not initially want to be involved with the park system. Right. And, you know, I really didn't think about it until I asked that question. And I think for me, my experience with law enforcement is different here in the U.S. I've kind of seen law enforcement more as like protection, but also at the same time fear, but not the type of experience that some other brown and black communities have interacting with law enforcement. So thank you for sharing that. I It's not something that I thought about very deeply until now. So when you're interacting with people from underrepresented communities, 
Are there specific things that you tell them to reassure them that, hey, I'm not here to arrest you. I'm just here to capture your curiosity for nature. Yeah. And I, we do talk about that, but yeah. the most important thing we can do is actually spend time with them so they can see that for themselves Yeah, and not just trust the words like, hey, we're just, we're friends here, right? Let's go backpacking together. We're going to spend like two yeah. or three days straight together. And you can see how I interact with you and the environment right. and the, the group, and they can actually see that. So I really have a lot of respect for these programs like the police activities leagues, mm. boys and girls clubs, and that partner with law enforcement or other different organizations to really spend that time together. And I've met a lot of really great police officers and law enforcement folks and rangers yeah. who spent time with the community and will go on hikes, will like hike with them and have lunch with them, have pizza all together and hang yeah. out for sometimes all day yeah. to build that relationship. And I think it's that physically spending a lot of time with the communities and with these organizations yeah. that's going to break down these barriers not just saying hey we're friends we support you like there actually has to be like physical interaction for right. extended periods of time for them to feel okay near each other right it's that effort to build that relationship with community and get to know them and like you said have an interaction but it's a two-way street and I think it also helps to humanize the person who's wearing that uniform so that they see the person not only as like a representation of the institution, but also that they are people who have feelings and that they have families and such. So that's interesting. One of the things from this conversation that I wanted to ask you is one of the things that the National Park Service is trying to do is they're trying to increase representation of different communities into these natural spaces. Are there any specific efforts? Or rather, the question is, how do you do targeted outreach to these communities so that they're interested in coming into the parks? You mentioned the programs, but how do you recruit these people? Yes, that's a great question. And oftentimes, it's coming up with personal relationships in these community leaders mm. that really binds our organizations together and creates the partnerships. For instance, I work at Rancho del Oso, which is part of Big Basin Redwood State Park mm -hmm. in Santa Cruz. And so near my park, there's this little town called Davenport. It's a little beautiful coastal park. And the Davenport Resource Service Center is funded and is operating to kind of provide services for lower income folks or people who aren't gaining a lot of benefit from other community services. So it's really there to. Right. And so I've been able to meet these people personally because we're physically close to each other. And I've made connections with the director of the Davenport Resource Service Center and their employees because I see them sometimes at the park or we're just in the general area, I see each other at the post office or something like that. Right. We get to talking and we start building that personal relationship between myself and the leaders of these communities. And that's the foundation for which we plan to build these trips and build these connections with their youth and with the other members of their community. So I really think that there, I mean, I'll kind of emphasize it again. I think there's got to be these prolonged kind of physical interactions with these right. people. Super hard now that there's the COVID-19, like social right. distancing and shelter in place. But I think that any way that you can actually interact for longer periods of time across communities that's really where the main partnerships are able to be built. And then there's reaching out. You know, we'll 
reach out to Title I schools that are like free and reduced lunches in California. Mm-hmm. There's these schools categorized as Title I. I'm not sure if it's a federal thing, but yeah. we'll actively mm-hmm. reach out to schools that have predominantly lower income students and yeah. we'll say, hey, teachers, we want to fund your field trip to the park. We'll pay the bus. We want to interact with your kids. We do these virtual field trips, these distance learning field trips where I'm like, kind of like, like now I'm like in front of an iPad and I'm zooming into them yeah. or like Facebook live. And then I'm like, Hey, how's it going everybody? Welcome to the park over here. You guys have any questions? My name is Jeremy. Here's my pet snake, my live snake that you can see. And they're like, Oh my God. I'm like, Oh, if you want to come to the park and meet my snake, that's great. And then all of a sudden yeah. there is this connection that they have and they can ask me questions. They can say, hey, how old are you? Or whatever. And I go, how old do you think I am? Like, we could, like, you know, some banter. Yeah. And we gain this connection through technology. And then they physically come to the park. And the moment they get off the bus, they're like, oh, it's Jeremy. We know him. We've been excited about it. We've met, yeah. you know, last week over. And so then there's that actual physical connection between myself at the park, who's representing the park system. And this community that doesn't really engage usually with the park system. Yeah. And then boom, we're connected. And there's a meaningful connection. And it's not just this, come to the park. Welcome. You're okay, great. Yeah, have fun. You know, it's like this, it's a bond. Right. At that point. It sounds like a very purposeful and, and intentional effort to create the bond that you just mentioned. So one of the goals that you have is to create that bond. Are there any other goals that you have in mind when you're interacting with students or with adults? And are the goals different based on the demographic or the age groups? Yeah. So I talked to Jack Shu on the phone for a while after I heard him on your podcast. Yeah. Shout out to Jack. He is one of my heroes. Yay. And thank you, Sapna, for connecting us. Of course. Jack is a former superintendent for the California State Park System in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And he's a career parks person. He's amazing. Chinese-American, amazing guy. So we were able to connect. And we were talking a lot about the different philosophies of providing programs to different people. Mm-hmm. And there are certain ways to have an, an overall philosophy and focus for different groups. One of them is a natural resources-centric focus for providing services. So that is people come to the park and you're entirely focused on talking about the natural resources and leave no trace ethics and crumb clean and natural history and conservation and sustainability and the history of the park system. And then another philosophy for educating folks and interpreting is a community-centric. And that's where you're looking into the community to see what their values are first and more designing your curriculum and your focuses on what is important to that culture or that community. And I would argue that we like to do both within the state park system Mm -hmm. is we're focused on protecting our natural resources, but we're also making it relevant to the communities and the different individuals that come. So different age groups, different people. I tend to start very slow with getting deep into the nature facts and the science. I like to welcome everybody to the park, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're aware of that, making sure that they feel safe, they know where the bathrooms are, they know where the exits are, they have water, they're warm, they've got everything they need. And then starting to build with fun activities. Mm -hmm. So it's first it's safe, and then it's fun. We're doing playing some games, we're enjoying a hike, we're joking around. And then I hit them with all that science they didn't know was coming. (laughs) Like, right when they're like, oh, this is just like, this is great. This isn't like school. This isn't heavy at all. I'm just so casual. This is amazing. And then I'm like, boom, let's talk about like niche theory and stuff like that. And let's talk about like keystone species and ecosystem function. 
And they don't even realize. They're like, oh my God, I learned so much. I didn't even know. Yeah. So I think that's the progression. First, it's safety and then it's fun. And then they're just so naturally curious about things. Mm -hmm. It's not even really me teaching them. It's them kind of pulling the information from me and me guiding their curiosity to understand nature better. Yeah. You have this personality and this energy of an educator. You just, I'm just imagining even being like in one of your (laughs) backpacking rooms. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I need to join him. (laughs) Have you always had an interest in wanting to educate and I don't know, just have this kind of personality where you want to build a relationship with people and educate them at the same time. How does that come about? <laughs> I've always been like the little leader of my like group of kids, of friends growing up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like the oldest. I have a little brother. And then we had neighbors living next door and then across the street. And they had multiple kids. And so it was like, I was kind of like the ringleader in like <laughs> I was our just group. Thinking like, oh, today we're gonna go skating. All right, now we're gonna go explore this area. Let's go to the trampoline gym next. Let's play yeah. some laser tag. So it's kind of like me learning how to like I started kind of at a young age. We were kind of like a latchkey family. <laughs> my mom worked her butt off. Mm-hmm. So shout out to my mom. Shout out to mom. Oh my god. Shout out to moms everywhere. Yeah. Stop yeah. that even your mom, everyone's mom. <laughs> so my mom was amazing in supporting us. And she's also very ambitious professionally. And she went to medical school pretty late in life. Mm. So she was working her butt off, supporting us. My parents were separated. My dad was living on the East Coast. We were living in New Mexico. Wow. And we were kind of latchkey kids. So we knew how to cook our own dinners at like age 13 and stuff like that. Like she was around, like she That's was awesome. obviously like people would come and check on us. She'd be with us. But there were some occasions where we would have to be like cleaning the house and making sure everything was all set in place for when mom got home because she was kind of tired. You, you know, like kids. <laughs> so I was able to kind of lead our little group of people and support them. And we had a lot of outdoor activity and a lot of fun, play a lot of games. So I've always been kind of a very social person working with people since I was really, really young. Yeah, And I was always a wild little hyper ADD kid. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you were directing that into constructive activities, like skating and breaking yourself. Let's be real, not all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are only human, so <laughs> it's understandable. So you're in the California State Park System, or I shouldn't make it sound like you're institutionalized or something of that sort, but <laughs> you want to progress within state parks and your experiences are unique to you, obviously. And we mentioned Jack earlier on, who was a guest on Breaking Green Ceilings. And he had an experience of over 29 years working in the state park system. And from his experience, he said that while the state park is well-intentioned, they're still overcoming institutional racism, which is, you know, he saw that as a challenge for the three decades that he worked at California state parks. Now, everyone's experiences are different. And I wanted to know what your experience has been in terms of feeling included. That's a great question. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for Jack Shu. He's my personal hero. I mean, he's became rose up the ranks to become superintendent. Mm-hmm. And that's my goal professionally. I would love to be superintendent of one of the 23 districts within California State Parks. The park system is spread into 23 geographic ranges or districts. Mm-hmm. And Jack Shu was 
the superintendent, basically the ultimate boss dude of one of the districts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm very impressed by his career trajectory and his knowledge and his experience. Yeah, indeed. He does talk a lot about institutional racism. He uses that term. I definitely noticed that state parks might benefit from more diversity within both of the staff and the volunteer base and participants and visitors of the park system. Yeah. I personally haven't experienced discrimination. However, I do notice that there are a lot of opportunity to include a more diverse staff that's more representative of the different cultures and different perspectives that we have in California. I think there is a need for that. But personally, I haven't experienced overt racism or that type of, I guess, anger or hatred directed at me or people of color in my limited experience within the park system. Yeah. I'm just trying to go back to my conversation with him. And he did say that it wasn't necessarily overt, but it was sort of like a cultural assimilation where you had to choose between the dominant white culture or your own kind of, he called it a home culture. But that's something that I think is not necessarily just unique to state parks, but just in any organization that has a dominant culture, right? He said also, it's not necessarily bad thing as in the culture of an institution because that's what crowns the institution and so sort of like if there's a leader who's implementing an extreme policy once they leave then the institution will revert back to what it was it doesn't necessarily change according to what that person implemented so it could go both ways essentially and i think based also on what I've read online about National Park Service and diversity and inclusion, they are recognizing that they do need to have a more diverse workforce and they do recognize that they do need to help more diversity into the national parks. So it's not like they're blind to it. So I think that's a good first step. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to give appreciation to state parks and a lot of the partners mm-hmm. for creating these programs that are really geared towards increasing diversity and access yeah. in the state park system. Right. And one of these are the ones I was talking about, the, it's called the Kids to Park program, where we pay for buses from these Title I schools and non-traditional park users. The biggest obstacle for people visiting parks is usually the cost of transportation to get there mm-hmm. in these school field trips because sometimes they're not going there at home. And so there's a lot of amazing programs that are increasing the equity and access programs. Similar to the backpacking trips that I leave, we're reaching out to these non-traditional park using user communities and underrepresented communities. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of really positive headway being made. Exactly. And I think that's sort of the takeaway for me is that there is an effort that is being made through the programs that you talked about. And Rome wasn't built in a day, so it's going to take very many years to sort of unlearn and undo some of those harmful practices or systems that have been put in place over several decades, right? But I do appreciate the effort, and I think the state park system is sort of integral and critical to our community as a whole, so I definitely do appreciate it. So one of the things that you are, you know, in terms of like your career progression is that 
while you do work at the state parks, you also are in grad school and you're focusing on evaluating the impact of volunteers serving in public lands, which I think is a very interesting topic. Would you mind telling us a little bit about why you're interested in the impact of volunteers on public lands and why you decided to kind of use grad school as a way to focus on this issue? Great. Yes. Wonderful question. Good news. I am graduating Ah, next month. My thesis defense was approved and my thesis paper was finally approved. Congratulations. Smooth sailing. I just have some paperwork, some formalities and my degree going. So that's feeling pretty good. Well, I've got a question for you. Mm. So do you have a favorite park or green space? Gosh, there's so many. Yes, I do. Picture that in your mind and let's have our audience do that too. Audience, picture your favorite park or green space where you like to go in your mind. Now think about the different needs that green space might have in terms of if the trail needs to be maintained, if trash needs to be cleaned up, if there are any species of concern, flowers or different animals that are protected, if there's any catastrophic natural disasters that come through or windstorms or floods. Who's kind of going to be fixing that? Are there any rules enforcement? Can people just camp anywhere, like on the trail? So the reason I'm bringing this up is there's just a ton of management needs for our green spaces and our public lands in this country. Mm -hmm. And there's about 60 to 70% of our lands are public lands in the United States, whether that's like a national forest or a state park or a national park or Bureau of Land Management, Department of Interior, Mm -hmm. county parks, city parks special jurisdiction parks. Wow. Like 60 to 70% of the land in the United States is a public land. Mm. So with all those, we're all kind of picturing our little spots that we like to go to. On this broad scale, there are tons of parks and public lands that need management. And so who maintains that space? Which agency and organizations are actually protecting the natural cultural resources, keeping it accessible, maintaining the campsites, packing out trash, maybe putting a porta potty in places that need to kind of mm-hmm. areas that need that. Yeah. Um, so I truly believe that the future of our public lands and our green spaces are dependent upon the communities living near and around those parks. So I think that it's up to the community really to play an active role yeah. in preserving and sustaining these parks. And so that's a pattern that's persisted within the national park system and definitely the California state park system. Uh, Just within the Santa Cruz district parks, we have 30 parks. Some of them are beach units. We have different backcountry parks. We have about 750 long-term volunteers that are just long-term throughout the year, 750. And that's not including the short-term work project volunteers. So we've got all these volunteers that are taking care of many aspects of the park system, Mm. visitor services and trail maintenance and habitat restoration. Tons of things are being done by volunteers. And when I saw this, I wanted to study exactly how they're impacting the public land system. And a lot of that's not really being measured or taken into account in these large management plans Mm -hmm. that are happening on on a larger scale. These long-range planning documents aren't really taking into account the impact that volunteers have, I thought. So I went, did a lot of interviews and I did a lot of surveys and found that the volunteers are having major impacts on our public lands, especially the California State Park system. Mm -hmm. So I just felt that it was really important to document that and have some empirical 
studies yeah. that have to do with volunteers on public lands. There's a lot of studies about volunteers in hospital settings and administrative roles and food banks and things like that. Right. But there are surprisingly few studies on how volunteers interact and impact the public lands. system. Yeah. So I'm publishing my paper pretty soon. And really okay. the crux of it is just emphasizing the role that volunteers are playing and emphasizing that we really depend on volunteer service mm-hmm. for a lot of the healthy function and operation of the park. Right. Yeah, just think about it. You have a limited or a finite budget and you can only employ a certain number of people to protect or to take care of the public lands that we do have. They're obviously not going to be enough. And so, yes, depending on volunteers to help be a part of that, I guess, community, it makes complete sense. Because they're volunteers, so you're not necessarily paying them, but they're providing you a labor of love, in a sense. And they're helping fill up the gaps that the National Park Service sometimes cannot fill, right? Absolutely. And it's hard to picture them having additional stimulus packages to support public lands in this environment that we're in right now. Like, Especially with COVID, they're not like, oh, we're going to prioritize protecting our public lands now. No, they're looking for public health solutions. They're supporting the people that really need to survive amidst this. So it's hard to imagine that in the future, there's going to be all these stimulus packages that are benefiting public lands. So I think now more than ever, it's important to validate the work that volunteers are doing and also support their work. Also, volunteer work, there's a saying that we have in the state park system. There's free like lunch and then there's free like kittens. (laughs) And so some things are free, like, oh, I'll take that free lunch. Yeah, I'll take that money. I'll take that grant or whatever. Like, that's free. That's great. But free, like, kittens. Yeah. I'm petting my little cat behind. His his name's Potato. (laughs) Potato. He just seems like a potato. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very, very cute name. (laughs) (laughs) But free, like, kittens. You can take a kitten for free, but that has a lot of implications for the cost of upkeep and taking care of the kittens and shots and food and shelter. Yeah. So volunteers, I don't want to really compare them to kittens too much, but in this analogy, they might be compared to kittens in that they need management, they need training, they need uniforms, they need to learn how to use the tools, they need support. If they run into issues, they need to get support from the park system to back them up if they had an encounter, a negative encounter with a visitor. They're primarily positive encounters, what I found. But sometimes there's some issues that arise in working with people in the park system. And so really it needs to be baked into the budget of incorporating volunteers as part of these management plans. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I look forward to reading your paper. So now that you're done with grad school. Congratulations again. It's quite a feat that you've accomplished. I was running on fumes towards the end of grad school. So. All right. Yeah. What'd you study? Sustainable international developments. Awesome. Of course you did stop that. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good times. But now that you've graduated and you're also still progressing in your career, what advice do you give to have to other people who are looking to pursue a career in education or in environmental education, because that's what you do. And also just like working in the park system. So advice for folks who want to get involved with uh, in the environmental field? Yeah, sure. Is that it? Okay, yeah. <laughs> but if you have any specific advice as far as like your 
your expertise goes. Whenever I talk to young people who are in high school and college, I always tell them to get internships. Mm-hmm. That's what it takes really now to excel, I think, in any field. I'll make that argument. I think in order to really get yeah. a leg up in most fields, getting internships and getting positions of responsibility, even part-time jobs when you're still in high school and still in college are extremely valuable because once you are ready to graduate, you actually have this work experience and references. Most importantly, references. The people you know are really important to giving you that boost into actually getting a paid job in the field of your choice. And I think that's very true in the environmental field because some of this stuff is very specific. If you are able to get an internship, say at a farm or a garden, then you understand the natural processes and biological processes of growing food and the day-to-day operations. You can understand that. So once you get out of college, you're graduating, you have this direct job experience that you can list as a reference and lean on to actually get you into the job market. And internships are just like, are like the best. I mean, I I can't speak for all of them, but if you're able to get a really sweet internship and you make a commitment to being there and working really hard, it is rewarding and sometimes life-changing. I had this internship on a farm where I was taking care of ducks Mm -hmm. and chickens and pigs and I got to press wine. They had like they had a little vineyard. So I was like using one of those old school wine presses, wow. like these big like wooden barrel things that are like seven feet tall with the big metal ratchet. And I was like ratcheting down. We filled it up with all the grapes. Wow. And I was like ratcheting this thing down and all the grape juice wine just like filtering out of the sides into this big basin. So cool. And then we put them into wine bottles. And that was just an experience that I would love to even have now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not in really a position to be an intern. And that's, there's like opportunity cost for sure. Yeah. You could be hanging out with the homies. You could be doing some <laughs> other stuff. You could do some sports. You could be going on some dates or whatever. You can do all that too. But I think carving out some time to get experience in different fields to help you figure out which direction you want to go yeah. is extremely valuable. And oftentimes you have to get like multiple jobs. That's what I had to do out of college. Like, I couldn't just, oh, I got I have one job now that I can just, I'll just have my job. It's like, no, I have two jobs at least. Wow. And then like some side hustles going on to be able to make ends meet by doing what I love to do. Yeah. So I think the current job market might benefit workaholics or people who just like are, are able to do a lot of different things and work a lot. Yeah. So maybe adding on to that is learning, practicing ways to decompress from stress. Because I think the human is an amazing animal who's able to go do really high stress things. And then through mental work and through awareness of body and self, you can calm yourself down to really get the rest you need in sometimes minimal amounts of time. I mean, we definitely need plenty of rest, be healthy. But I've practiced being able to do crazy things like lead backpacking trips for a few days where it's very intense with people and nature and physical activity. And then coming home and meditating a little bit and having a practice where I can bring myself down mm-hmm. to a more centered place. If that's valuable for being able to do all the work that I just told everyone to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really got to be purposeful. You have to make that effort to, to center yourself. You have to make the effort to find those internships. That's one of the really good advice that I got from Alison Orsby, who's also your advisor for grad school. Yeah. 
she told me earlier on, just get as many internships as you can and don't be kind of idle during the summers. And I think in volunteering, that definitely helped build character, resilience, and helped me get a better idea of what I wanted to do once I graduated. Shout out to Allison Ormsby. Shout out. Allison, I think you're you're going to listen to this one. (laughs) So we just have a lot of love for you. Thank you so much. And Allison connected us to, I believe, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So people like Allison, Allison, you are amazing and we love you and wish you the best. (laughs) And thank you. Yeah. And she was also a guest on Breaking Green Ceilings. She was uh, part of our launch group. And I think that people like her, I consider them as just strong allies who are genuinely committed to the success of those who they're mentoring. And she's been sort of like my guide even after I graduated. It's been almost 15 years and we're still in touch. And we presented at a conference in Kentucky like two months ago. So she's always kind of like looking out for me. And I really appreciate that, right? She's like my academic mother. (laughs) I don't know what the word is. But I think people like that are fundamental to your success. And now you have Jack Shu, which is awesome. I'm so glad I was able to help get you two connected. And I think now as you're looking to make your way to becoming a superintendent, having Jack's experience to kind of not necessarily, I mean, to just inform you on how you can make your own path, I think is critical at the end of the day. So yeah. All right. Well, we are at the point where I just shoot some questions at you. It's sort of my version of a pop quiz. (laughs) Yeah. And then I have one more for you if you're into it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So this is the lightning round and I'll ask you a series of four questions. And the first thing that comes to your mind, uh, please answer it. Well, you don't have to have an answer, but it would be nice. (laughs) All right. So what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you? Okay, first thing that comes to mind is the rapper Lil Dicky put out this video and song called Earth. Okay. And I enjoy this for a few reasons. One, it's like a really catchy song. But two, he incorporates kind of pop culture ideals Mm. into a climate action message. So it's really enjoyable to watch, even without being like, oh, I'm looking for like a deep, heavy message about how I can like save the planet. Yeah. It's enjoyable to watch for that ways. And then if you like really look into it and hear what he's talking about, it's all positive about saving the earth. <laughs> really yeah. great. Lil Dicky. All right. Yeah, we'll include the links in the show notes. The other thing is this book that I've been telling everyone about, and some people are sick of hearing me talk about it, but it's this book called Eager. Mm-hmm. It's The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter by Ben Goldfarb. Ben's writing is just like poetic, but it's also based in empirical studies and science. And essentially, beavers are the architects of North America and their populations are dwindling. And if we support their populations, biodiversity will increase. Water storage will increase through the dams. Ecosystems will be healthier. You have these keystone species surviving more. We need to bring back the beaver. Thank you, Ben. Shout out to Ben Goldfarb. Read that book, Beavers. It's called Eager, (laughs) The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers. Eager beaver. I'll definitely add that to my Goodreads list. Call me when you read that. We can talk about it because okay. it's amazing. <laughs> Will do. What is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I brushed on this briefly, but meditation is really important to me. Yeah. Especially with the high 
stress of everyday life. Even just living nowadays, I think is stressful. Even just trying to wake up in the morning yeah. and like get out of bed is stressful. And even like trying to lie down and go to sleep, it's like stressful. It was like so much doom right now. Yeah. So I think that consistent meditation practice is really good. And I want to specifically outline Vipassana meditation as taught by S.N. Goenka. I've done multiple 10-day sits, all silent meditation and several three-day sits of meditation. And it's just the principle of just deep meditative practice and seeing yourself and the world kind of in a more realistic light, more objectively, Mm -hmm. and staying positive through that and understanding what power you have to kind of make positive changes in your life. There's a really great app called Insight app too. Feeling all stressed, lie down on the ground on your back and play like one of these like five to 10 minute sound clips of someone like reading poetry or like talking about empowerment. Okay. That's a really good one too for people to help calm down and relax and see the light in the world. At the end of the tunnel. Yes, it's there. (laughs) Half eight. What's the best piece of advice you've received? I think the best piece of advice recently is from Jack Shu when Mm. we talked. We had a really long conversation. And he's brilliant. So he was talking about just how the state parks system can impact people and being very intentional about how we go about interacting with folks. And so his whole thing was measuring output versus outcomes. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of jobs and a lot of professions, there's a lot of focus on output where you're like, okay, we need to produce this product. We need to have these amount of things available. This is our service that we're providing. We want to have a lot of output. Yeah. But most importantly for the park system and what we do in public lands management is focus a lot on what are the outcomes we're looking for. We can have a lot of output. We can have all this space. We can have all these programs. But if we're not thinking about how our programs and our output is actually affecting the people we're aiming towards, and looking for these outcomes of changing people's perspectives, welcoming people into the park system, increasing access, increasing awareness, then our output is not as powerful if we're not taking into account that larger picture. Mm -hmm. So it's been on my mind a lot ever since I was speaking with Jack is not only focusing on output, but thinking about the outcomes and results of what we're producing and what services we're providing. Yeah. That was uh, something that really stuck out to me as well, uh, especially coming from like a background in uh, in research and in development where we measure the impact of our projects and we've created, you know, metrics for impact. And we often use the word output for sure. Um, and the outcomes just takes it to a deeper level, I feel, where we're actually looking at what is the impact of our work. Um, is Does our intention translate into the reality that we want? And I think that's really especially um, relevant for the state parks because you want to create value to for people to want to protect these natural spaces or maintain them, right? Um, And you also want them to, or communities to grow from interacting with natural spaces. So um, sometimes it may seem like a really hard way to quantify the outcomes, but we we should at least try. So um, thank you for sharing that. So the final question here is, what is your superpower? Superpower. 
Well, I think recently I've realized my superpower might be my ability to improvise and adapt, Mm -hmm. especially with kind of our changing systems within the park system, adapting to shelter-in-place orders and COVID mitigation stuff, adapting our programs to be able to still engage with visitors and people, um, kind of using technology for that. And I also recently got a new job where I'm going to be adapting and improving to a new job. So I literally just was offered this position and I accepted. I'm moving to Lake Tahoe area. So Sierra District State Parks, I have a promotion and I'll be kind of managing more responsibility in the interpretation and education field in the Lake Tahoe area state parks. Congratulations. I think one of my superpowers is ability to adapt to new situations. At least I hope. I haven't been there yet. So maybe I'm jumping the gun on this one. But I think I'll be able to adapt well to a new situation and be able to continue to provide services to the public. Yeah, I think so too. That's wonderful news. You've been giving us lots of wonderful news throughout. So we've reached the end of our conversation here. And do you want to do the pub quiz now or? Let's do it. Okay. Let's do this right now. Okay. So I won't give too much of a a lead into this one, but this is in short, educates about salmon. Okay. So salmon, the fish that swims in the stream. So this game here, Satna, is called Salmon or Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson is the famous actor in many movies. Snakes on a plane. Snakes on a plane. Snakes on a plane. Yes. (laughs) That's him. Okay. So you know. All right. And salmon are the family of fish salmonids that live and spawn in streams and go out to the ocean, etc. Okay. Salmon or Samuel L. Jackson, 60 seconds on the clock and California State Parks played the French horn and trumpet in middle and high school. Samuel Jackson. <laughs> yes. Eats insects, plankton, eels, squid, and shrimp. Salmon. Yes. Became vegan for four years for health reasons and lost 40 pounds. Wow, Samuel Jackson. Yes. Can jump 12 feet out of the water. Salmon. Yes. Agreed to play Mace Windu in Star Wars before even reading the script. Samuel Jackson. Yes. May lay up to 5,000 eggs while spawning. Salmon. Yes. Who said, and I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. Samuel Jackson. Yes. Migrate to the ocean and back to freshwater to lay eggs, also called anadromous. Salmon. Yes. Can swim up to 36 feet per second. Salmon. Yes. Held hostage as college's board of trustees to demand school policy reform. Samuel Jackson. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's crazy, huh? Return to the same stream they were born to lay eggs. Salmon. Yes. Majored in marine biology, then switched to architecture before acting. Samuel Jackson. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Got it. Okay. Wow. Stop that. You nailed that one. 100%. (laughs) It's you. I know them well. Both of them now. (laughs) You're a Sam Jackson expert now. (laughs) But he's pretty crazy life. Like when I was researching, I was like, no way. He held his... Hostages College's Board of Trustees to demand school policy reform? Yes, I actually launched that in some YouTube documentary. I don't know, but he's an amazing actor and person. I think he's one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, right? And at one point, he was the highest paid. Yeah. And he's been around for a long time. Both him and Salmon are pretty cool. They are. They are. I agree. (laughs) 36 feet? They can swim 36 feet per second. 36 feet per second. That's amazing. Yeah, when they're really going. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not from a standstill. Probably like they're measured as they're already moving. Yeah. That's so cool. 
Amazing. All right. So how can we follow you on your fun journey as you make your transition to, she said Lake Tahoe? Yep. Tahoe Donner Memorial State Park is my new digs. Mm. So California State Parks on social media, all the socials. I'm also doing live stream programs at my Rancho Del Oso Facebook page. So Rancho Del Oso, it's part of Big Basin Redwood State Park. It's on the coast. And I play a lot of guitar. So I'll do like a little guitar song, play some music, Mm -hmm. get everyone all juiced up, all ready to go, all revved up. And then I talk a lot about the kind of flowering plants happening right now because we're in wildflower season. So I identify a lot of plants and their adaptations and pollinators. That's kind of what I'm focusing on now. And I also have live reptiles that I bring out and people can kind of see those virtually. Awesome. I'll be there. (laughs) Yeah. Totally going to check them out. All right, great. Well, is there anything else you would like to add? I want to thank you, Sapna, for interviewing me. I thought this is a really nice conversation and I'm excited to be here. And I think what you're doing is amazing and keep at it. And I'm honored to be a part of this. Well, I'm honored that you are part of this process, I guess, this movement that we're trying to build. And thank you so much for sharing your story and also for pop quizzing me. Yeah. That was fun. I guess I have one more thing I want to share. Sure. I was thinking about one thing I want to add would be to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt nowadays in this really stressful situation. Mm-hmm. I've had to do a lot with that when I interact with people who want to use the park system and they're pretty agitated and they see me back there and they're like, ah, this is my backyard and I always use this and now I can't do it. I think it's important nowadays to yeah. ease up on some of our blame that people are throwing around sometimes. Like, it's your fault. It's our fault. I think it's it's really easy to cast blame and it's a little bit harder but necessary to understand that people are generally coming from a place of positivity and want the best for themselves and their family and also the United States. Yeah. And in this era of people like kind of tearing each other apart, it's so important for us to realize that people ultimately care a lot. And that's why they're arguing and fighting and not because they really hate each other. It's because they care a lot. Yeah. I had this interaction at the beach the other day and I was body surfing a little bit and I ran into my friend and we were sitting there social distance, but we were allowed to be there. The beach was open and I was body surfing and I was talking to him and there was a family behind us. And so people walked by and this woman thought that we were having a party because it was like us sitting there and then kind of behind us, there was like another family. And so she just started reprimanding us for having a party, uh, accusing us of spreading the virus. My first initial reaction was like, you don't know what you're talking about, lady. And I didn't say anything, but I was thinking that. I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. But then I was like, you know, she's really maybe thinking that her warning us about this is going to be the best for the planet and her community is limiting these kind of social gatherings until the virus dissipates for us to be able to come back out again. So she probably in her mind thought that she was helping ultimately, but kind of misconstrued the situation. Mm -hmm. So instead of me getting all angry and self-righteous and like arguing, I just waved at her, acknowledged that I heard her, let her go on with her walk and then process that as her trying to do the best. And also me trying to do the best by staying healthy and (laughs) following all the rules. I could still be at the beach body surfing a little bit. Yeah. But it's tough. There's a lot of emotions flying nowadays. Oh yeah, for sure. Thank you for reminding us about that because with the protests that are happening and everyone just for the most part where our anxiety levels are really high right now we want this to end and we keep asking ourselves when is this going to end but we don't know and i think it's that sort of like the uncertainty of the situation and 
the severity of making one misstep could end up taking your life. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I really hope that those people who are quick to want to reprimand others take a step back and ask themselves, what is going on here? (laughs) And should I do something about it? Or like, what can I do to really understand the situation better before jumping into conclusions? I think that's another important thing to do because then it it turns into like a a barbecue Becky kind of situation. (laughs) Yeah, we don't need any more of those. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, well, thank you again so much for this wonderful conversation. I learned so much and I think your story is so important for other aspiring environmentalists and your story means a lot to me so thank you so much for sharing great and let's shatter those green ceilings yeah (laughs) you should be my spokesperson (laughs) (laughs) i'll be your hype man (laughs) just zoom me in when you need a little hype and i'll just hype up (laughs) yeah have you on speed dial (laughs) like jeremy hype me up Cool. All right. Well, thank you again. And we'll definitely be in touch. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.